In the famous play, Romeo and Juliet, Shakespeare wrote the question, what's in a name? And through his character, Juliet, he's actually asking if names really matter. Do they actually carry any significance? Or could we just call anybody anything? I would suggest that names do matter. If you think they don't matter, call someone by the wrong name. I have a friend, her name is Vivian. For the first couple years that I knew her, I was never quite sure whether it was Vivian or Viviani. So it was, I was like, hey, Vivi, follow V, hello, V. And then one time I said, Viviani, Vivian. I was corrected, Vivian. When I was a kid, people used to call me Nathan. I hated that. I was okay with Nate. I was okay with Nathaniel. I was like, what gives you the right to change my name? Just last week, I was organizing a little soccer game with these kids, young boys that were, you know, seven, eight years old. And we were playing, and I kept talking to this one kid, Felipe. I was like, way to go, Felipe. That's a great shot. And he's like, I'm not Felipe. I'm Guilherme. <laughs> Names matter. Names matter. Otherwise, why would it bother you if people got your name wrong? Names matter because they carry our identity. They're the word that's most closely associated with how we view ourselves and how others relate to us and know us. When someone asks you, who are you? You usually respond with your name. Today, we want to ask this question, what's in a name? We want to ask that question to or of the greatest, most supreme name over all history, the name of Jesus. In chapters 3 and 4 of Acts, we've been building up to this question because it was in Jesus' name that Peter and John healed the lame man at the temple gate. And everything else has followed from there. I'll also point out that today, for the first time since Pentecost, for the first time since the church was born, the church is going to meet some resistance. Up until now, they've enjoyed the favor of the people. They've been growing in peace and joy. Now, for the first time, there's going to be some pushback, some, some resistance. So I'm going to be reading the first section here of Acts chapter 4. And as I read it, I want you to be asking that question. What's in a name? What is in the name of Jesus? The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, and the number of men grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, elders, and teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, as, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and the other men of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we're being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel 
It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men? They asked. Everybody living in Jerusalem knows they've done an outstanding miracle and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn these men to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. For we cannot help speaking about what we've seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. As we move through this passage, I want to draw out nine realities in the name of Christ. Nine realities in the name of Jesus. So what's the context here? Peter's preaching away in front of the temple when he's interrupted by the temple guards and the Sadducees. Now, the Sadducees were a minority religious sect. We often hear them mentioned together with the Pharisees, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But the Sadducees were unique within Judaism in that they did not believe in any kind of afterlife. So they, they thought that this current physical life that we live, that was it for humanity. There's nothing more afterwards, either good or bad. So what bothered them about Peter's preaching was not primarily the miracle, but it's that Peter was teaching about the resurrection from the dead. Not only that Jesus himself had risen, but that Jesus was offering that same resurrection from the dead to anyone who would believe in him. So they're extremely upset upset enough to arrest them and put them in jail overnight. But through the agitation and the response of these Sadducees, we see the first reality in the name of Jesus. It's very basic. It's very foundational. But there is life in the name of Jesus. Life that comes from death. Resurrection from the dead. There is life in the name of Jesus. Christ. The second reality in the name of Christ is is a strange one. The word I've used here is magnetism. There is magnetism in the name of Christ. I'm going to give you a little insight into what happens behind the scenes sometimes when a lot of pastors get together at a conference or a meeting. Sometimes they get into this kind of verbal dance where they're all trying to figure out who has the biggest church, okay? I'm not proud of this. I'm just, I'm just, I'm giving you some reality. You're trying to, trying to kind of figure out, so, you know, uh, 
how many people attend your church or how many members do you have? And I, I actually decided many years ago that I would never ask a fellow pastor about size or numbers. It's not profitable. It doesn't build up. All it does is create either pride or depression. Um, and, it, and it also tries to set up sort of a hierarchy about who is worth more, supposedly, simply because more people attend a church that they happen to serve. But the book of Acts does talk about numbers. But it doesn't do it in a, a negative or a triumphalistic or a competitive way. It's a celebratory way because every one of these numbers represents a human soul that is passed from death into life through the name of Jesus. So we know that there were 3,000 believers approximately added on that Pentecost day. And here in this passage, we read that the number has grown to 5,000 men. And that's only addressing men. That's not taken into account women and children. So we can extrapolate from that very likely that the number of believers, the size of this new church, is now probably around 15,000, maybe 20,000 people. The Holy Spirit is the best marketing director. I don't know of any other church, not even Hillsongs, can open a new church branch and have 15,000 people in a few weeks. Because this is the name of Jesus, and it's the name of Jesus proclaimed in the power of the Holy Spirit. And people are drawn to him. That's where the magnetism comes in. They are attracted to Jesus. The kingdom of God here in Acts may be growing only one person at a time, but it is growing fast. It is exploding Remember what I said when, when, we, when I talked about that, those numbers on Pentecost, about how Jesus said to his disciples that they were going to do greater things even than he had done? This is an example of that, right? Jesus, when he died, from what we can gather, he had approximately 120 followers. And now, a few weeks after Pentecost, through the, by the Holy Spirit working through his disciples, and then on through the people, the church has multiplied exponentially. There's that magnetism to the name of Jesus. Even as Peter and John are arrested, people are choosing to believe in Jesus. And I put myself in that, in that role of observer. I'm listening to Peter preach, and I'm kind of getting interested in what he's saying. And then all of a sudden, the soldiers come with the Sadducees and arrest them and take them to jail. That's not the point where I imagine myself saying, oh yeah, that's what I want. I'm going to follow this Jesus because I want to go to jail too. That's the point where I imagine myself saying, I'm going to go home now. But the magnetism in the name of Jesus is so great that even as they see that happening, people are drawn to Jesus. As a magnet attracts metal, so Jesus draws the sinner out of despair and into life. However, there is another side to magnetism, isn't there? Magnets and metals have poles. One pole attracts and the other repels. And we're going to see this also in the book of Acts. We already see it in this passage with the religious leaders. The crowds are drawn to Jesus irresistibly. But the religious leaders are repulsed by the hardness of their hearts and by unbelief. 
It's going to be a recurring theme in Acts. At the name of Jesus, some are irresistibly attracted while others are offended and repelled and they reject him. And this leads us to ask us ourselves the question, which, which am I? Which am I? To the magnetism in the name of Christ, am I, do I respond in that attraction or do I respond in that rejection? As we move on to the third reality, I want to read again for you verse 10. Peter is speaking. He says to the Sanhedrin, Then know this, you and all the people of Israel. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. By the name of Jesus, a man who was over 40 years old. Incidentally, why does Luke include that detail, do you think? At the very end of this passage, it seems a little out of place. The man was over 40 years old. Remember, Luke's a doctor, right? And Luke is also writing, in a sense, to not to prove the truth of Christ, but to witness to it. So when, when Luke draws this out, says, by the way, that man was over 40 years old, what he's saying is there's over 40 years of evidence that this guy really was lame. Okay, this wasn't just a sprained ankle and then he got better. 40-some years of history, this guy was lame. And so for 40 years, his legs had been useless since he was born. And then that man stands, walks, and jumps in the space of one second. There is no surgery. There was no long protracted sessions of physical therapy. There was just disability. And then there was complete healing. There's power in the name of Jesus. Complete and total power over all creation, power over the human body, power over disease, power over life and death. And this power is revealed in the healing of this man. The fourth reality in the name of Jesus is a strange word, and I'm I'm confessing to you that I had to force it a little bit into a noun form because it is not usually used as a noun. But there is essentiality in the name of Jesus, okay? There's essentiality in the name. What I'm trying to say with this is simply that the name of Jesus is essential. It is the primary name, the most important name, the crucial name. Peter, in this passage, quotes from Psalm 118, the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. And he says, that's who Jesus is, the capstone. So Anna, would you put that, uh, that, that photo up there, that picture? I want to illustrate to you for a moment the capstone. Uh, now, you should also know that interpreters and translators have struggled with this word capstone. It's been translated cornerstone, it's been translated keystone, and it's been translated capstone. Each one of those three stones are actually a different stone but they can all equally apply to and illustrate who Jesus is. So a cornerstone, by the way, this isn't a wonderful structure. I'm sure if Glenn were to build something, it'd be much better than this. But I think this gives us an idea. So the cornerstones would be the two stones on either side at the bottom. They're the foundation. Everything rests on the cornerstone. And if the cornerstone is not solid, the building falls down. The keystone 
is the one that stands right at the middle at the top that holds up both sides of the arch. Okay? So it's not that top stone, it's the one under that top stone. But you see, you can imagine, if that keystone were removed, what happens to the arch? It collapses. Jesus Christ is the keystone. He is the cornerstone on which everything is based. He is the keystone on which the whole building rises and is joined together and it can bear weight. Now, what's the capstone? The capstone is the very top stone, the one that rests on top of the keystone and holds the keystone in place. It keeps that downward pressure on the keystone that holds the whole arch together. So I'm only putting this out there so that you understand that any of these three are fair translations of the word. And all of them can equally accurately reflect who Jesus is. The point is that the name of Jesus, Jesus himself, is essential. Any one of those you remove, the building collapses. In him, in Jesus, all things hold together. And without him, all things collapse. Without Jesus, the edifice of the church cannot be built. But with him, the church rises up in glory. And yet we also read here that this name, the one essential name of all history, the only essential name for salvation, it's the one that the builders have rejected. In this context, the builders are the religious leaders of the Sanhedrin. Think about the irony of that. They're trying to build and they don't have a capstone, they don't have a cornerstone, they don't have a keystone. It's like trying to give life to a human body without blood or without a heart or without a brain. It's impossible because the name of Jesus is essential. Moving on to the fifth reality. When I was young, younger, when I was growing up, uh, my parents made me memorize a lot of scripture verses. Um, at the time, full disclosure, I wasn't super excited about that. Today, I'm very, very grateful. Very grateful because due to their persistence, those verses got into my mind, into my psyche, into my heart, and they're still there. I, I had to memorize 15 verses a week, and I had to recite them um, acceptably to either my mom or my dad, um, on Saturday morning, before I could do anything fun. Not that memorizing scripture wasn't fun, but I had to uh, complete that before I could do my own thing. So being the very committed, dedicated, um, working ahead kind of person that I am, I would start memorizing on Saturday morning when I got up. So I rarely got to do anything on Saturday until after lunch. Um, but the point is, the reason I, I go into this, all this background is Acts 4.12 was one of the first verses that I can remember memorizing. And, you know, it, it, it has morphed over the years because I memorized it in the King James um, originally, and now it's been influenced by the NIV and then the 2011 edition of the NIV and the ESV and all this. But the principles and the points are still there, and I'm grateful to my parents and beyond that, I'm grateful to God for, for leading me in this discipline. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. There is salvation in the name of Jesus. Only in the name of Jesus. 
salvation from eternal separation from God and salvation for eternal life with him. Now, Peter and John have performed this truly impressive, miraculous sign, but that sign was a lesser sign. It was impressive and it was visible, but it was lesser because it was pointing to the greater invisible truth that the name of Jesus is powerful to save the dead. You remember that, that account in the Gospels of the lame man, the paralytic, whose friends bring him to Jesus. They can't get in the door, so they go up on the roof. They dig through the roof. They lower the man down so that he's lying in front of Jesus. And Jesus looks at this man who can't walk, and he says, your sins are forgiven. And those of us who are reading and listening and watching, we're all kind of like, well, that's kind of a letdown. That's not, you know, we're, we're wanting an impressive healing. Jesus says, you are, your sins are forgiven. And then everyone's murmuring a little bit and Jesus turns to the crowd and he says, well, what's easier to say? What's easier? For me to say your sins are forgiven or for me to say rise and walk? Well, what's the, what's the implication? It's easier to say your sins are forgiven. Why? Because you don't have to back it up. There doesn't have to be any evidence. So it's easier to say that. But what does Jesus do? He says, so that you will know that the Son of Man has the authority to forgive sins. That's the greater sign. Rise and walk. That's the lesser sign. We look at that and say, wow, walking, that was the impressive thing. No, Jesus is saying, the lesser visible sign, I'm going to give you something you can see, but remember, that's lesser, and it's pointing to the greater. There's salvation in my name. Salvation from sin, salvation from eternal separation from God, salvation from destruction, salvation from perversion, salvation from your own sinful desires. But you're going to have a hard time believing that so that you can believe that greater one, rise and walk. The sixth reality is exclusivity. There is exclusivity in the name of Jesus. Peter states this boldly. This is the only name. There is no other name. There's no other option. There's no other way. There's no other path. Jesus is the only way to salvation, the only way to God, the only way to forgiveness. Exclusivity. And I think it's that more than anything else that offends the world today. I think it's the exclusive nature of Christ that the world reacts against. If Jesus were just one more way to God or one more option for salvation, I don't think the world would care that much. But the fact that Jesus himself made claims to be the only way to God the fact that his early followers reaffirmed that truth with all their hearts and with their lives, that bothers people today and it bothered people back in the Roman Empire. That Jesus could claim to be the only way. And you know, honestly, I think that sometimes we within the church today, we're ashamed of the exclusivity of Jesus. Paul talks about not being ashamed of the gospel, and I think sometimes the, exclus the exclusive claims that Christ made, we're ashamed of those. We don't like to focus in on those. There's a, a man I know who spent a number of years here at Calvary as a, a vibrant part of this community. We were talking about, uh, uh, the conversation was about missions and ministry and evangelism, and he said, you know, 
Who am I? Who am I to tell someone else that what, what they believe isn't right? Who, who am I to, to force Jesus on someone? Who am I to say that Jesus is the only way? He's the way for me. I believe he's the only way. But who am I to tell somebody else that he's the only way? Um, if Jesus is the only way, then the greatest harm, the greatest cruelty that we could ever enact on someone else is to never share that with them. Now, how they choose to respond to that, that's up to them. That's between them and God and his spirit. But we do have the responsibility as his children, as the children of God and as witnesses of the resurrection to speak that truth in love and winsomely but to, to be honest, that Jesus is the only way. If you get stopped on the street and someone asks you for directions, or they say, you know, is the cartorio down this road? And you have no idea. And you're like, yeah, 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 just go. It's right down here. Actually, go down here two blocks, take a right, go to the light, take a left, and then go three more blocks straight ahead. You're going to see a blue house, and just to the left of the blue house is a cartorio. You know, they're so thankful. Wow, you've been so helpful. You haven't been helpful. You just told them to go to the wrong place. Directions matter. The name of Jesus is exclusive. It excludes all other options for salvation. He is the only one, the only way. And this brings us to our seventh reality. What is the one thing about Peter and John that the religious leaders take note of? It says it specifically in the text. It's not primarily the miracle. It's not primarily their teaching. The text says that they realized that Peter and John were unschooled, ordinary men. By unschooled, they don't mean they were illiterate. They meant that they were not, they hadn't been educated formally in the Jewish religion. They weren't rabbis, they weren't teachers, they weren't authorities. They were unschooled, ordinary men. And look what they had done. And look how they were defending their faith boldly and articulately in front of these very intimidating men. What do they take note of? And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Even the enemies are recognizing where the transformation in the name of Jesus comes from. There's transformation in his name. There was only one way that these unschooled fishermen, a little bit rough, a little bit rude, a little bit smelly, Right? I mean, you can't be a fisherman for too long without smelling like the fish. How, how did they become bold, articulate, joyful witnesses to the resurrection? Because they had been with Jesus. And there's transformation in him. Don't have a lot of time to go into this, but as we apply that to us today, what does it mean or what can it mean for us to be with Jesus? In other words, to, to have that relationship that brings about the transformation in us. Broadly speaking, I would suggest three avenues. His spirit, his word, and his church. 
Because it is the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, that Christ promised, that proceeds from the Father and the Son, that indwelt his church at Pentecost. We've just read about it and just studied it here in Acts. And that indwells every believer for the glory of God. And so he has placed that Spirit within us. Our response to that is to not quench the Spirit. Do not repress the Spirit's power. Do not refuse to follow the conviction of the Spirit. His word, I don't need to go into a whole lot more detail on that. If we believe that this really is God's word, this is his direct communication to his church, to his children, why would we not invest ourselves in it? And then lastly, his church. We need each other. We've been made into a body. That's what, that's what Jesus says. That's what scripture says. We're built up into a body, a family, a body. It's essential that we have each other that we not only interact um, for fun and conversation and relationally, but that we gather intentionally to worship together, to study together, to spur one another on to love and good deeds, as the author of Hebrews says. So we want to be with Jesus. The focus on his spirit, his word, and his church. More than anything else. And transformation comes through being with Jesus. The eighth reality is that there is threat in the name of Jesus. That might surprise you to hear that. As the Sanhedrin comes to the end of the pseudo-trial, they decide together that they're going to prohibit Peter and John from speaking to anyone in this name. It's interesting that they never say the name. The leaders never say the name. They ask him at the beginning, um, in what name are you doing all this? And then at the end they say, we have to keep them from saying anything in this name. They don't even want to say it. They tell them not to speak in the name of Jesus, but that's Luke's edit editorizing when, they're, when he's actually quoting them they never say the name because Jesus is a threat to them. The name of Jesus is a threat to their power. It's a threat to their authority and a threat to the stability of their position. A popular slogan these days is speak truth to power. Have you heard that? Speak truth to power. I've heard this statement often applied to Jesus, that Jesus spoke truth to power when he confronted the Pharisees, that he spoke truth to power when he confronted Pilate, that he spoke truth to power when he confronted um, Satan or when he cleansed the temple. And while all that may be true, when we take up that phrase on Christ's behalf, it's almost always becoming, in a sense, political. Somehow, you know, we... we, we there's someone in authority that we may not really like, and so we imagine Jesus, you know, speaking truth to that power and bringing them low through the truth that Christ speaks. And while that may be appropriate, there may be times that Jesus would have done that. There were simply times that he, there were certainly times that he did do that. But what we forget is that Jesus is a threat to all power. He is a threat to all authority that is not God's authority. The truth that Jesus speaks is first of all spoken to self. And, and that applies to all of us. 
the primordial enemy of God that inhabits every single human being, self. The self that Satan appeared to, uh, appealed to in Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, you can be like God knowing good and evil. You can set yourself up as a rival to God. The truth of Jesus challenges the authority of self in each of us. So we see Peter here speaking the truth of Jesus to the religious power of the day. And we think, yeah, Peter, stick it to the man. But we forget everything that Peter has gone through to get to this point. Because all the truth of Christ was first spoken into Peter before he was ready to speak truth to those powers of the day. Remember the Peter who rebuked Jesus? Peter rebuked Jesus and told him to stop talking about dying? Do you remember the Peter to whom Jesus had to say, get behind me, Satan? That'll take you down a few pegs. Remember Peter, the, the one who promised Jesus, all these other guys here, these other 11, they may fall away and forsake you, but I will never desert you. Remember the Peter who fell asleep in the Garden of Gethsemane, even though Jesus had begged him to stay awake and pray with him? Remember Peter who, in, uh, as a swashbuckling hero, drew his sword and swung at the servant of the chief priest and cut off his ear? Remember the Peter who fled from the soldiers in the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember the Peter who blatantly and directly and bold-facedly denied Jesus three times. Friends, Peter, Peter was able to boldly speak truth to the Sanhedrin because the truth of Jesus had already been spoken to his own flesh his own self, and Jesus had won. By the grace of God, Peter had placed his own self, his own authority, his own self-actualization and surrendered to the name that is above every name. And he had bowed to the name of Jesus. I bring that up today because I don't want us to externalize the threat that Jesus is to authorities that oppose God. It's easy to externalize that and think only in terms of outside and we forget our own tendency to set self up on the throne. Jesus is a threat to all authority and power that is not God's and it begins with self. <gasps> Take a deep breath because we're finally at number nine if you're counting. The final reality in the name of Jesus is inspiration. Peter and John display a remarkable reaction to the Sanhedrin when they're on trial. And again, I find myself often putting myself in the place of biblical characters. And I imagine myself there. So I imagine myself standing trial, realizing these guys are about to let me go. And they say to me, we're going to let you go, but you are prohibited from speaking to anyone in this name. What do I imagine Nathaniel doing? I imagine Nathaniel bowing his head, gently nodding, and in my mind thinking, I don't have to do what they say. I'm still going to talk about Jesus. But Peter and John, they just say it boldly right at their face. You're going to let us go? You want us not to talk about Jesus? Tell you what, should we obey you or should we obey God? Because you know what? 
We can't help but talk about Jesus because we've seen what he's done. See you later. I mean, what are they doing? That's not, I don't imagine, I wish I had, would have that. I hope, I hope if I'm ever in that situation that I would have that kind of boldness. But what's going on? The name of Jesus has so inspired Peter and John that the threat of the Sanhedrin to them is nothing. It's like, you can tell us not to talk about Jesus, but we don't have anybody else to talk about. There's no other name. Didn't you hear us? We just told you there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And to see the inspiring power of the name of Jesus transforming these men, transforming the church, because it's not just Peter and John, it's going to be all the believers in Acts as they begin to testify and witness and the word spreads. It's going to be the believers at Calvary International Church in 2020 and into 2021 and into the foreseeable future, the Lord permitting. The, the name of Jesus inspiring his people to witness for him because there's no other option. There's no other name. There's no other joy. There's no other hope. There's no other salvation. There's no other peace. There's no other future except in the name of Jesus. So brothers and sisters, in the name of Jesus, there is life. In the name of Jesus, there is magnetism. He both attracts and he repels. In the name of Jesus, there's power. In the name of Jesus, there is essentiality. In the name of Jesus, there is salvation. In the name of Jesus, there is exclusivity. In the name of Jesus, there is transformation. In the name of Jesus, there is threat. And in the name of Jesus, there is divine inspiration for witness. So what are we doing? Why would we not value the name of Jesus above everything else? If he is the pearl of great price, as the parable says, then all other valuables, all other entertainments, all other hopes, all other dreams, all other valuables pale before him. Let's surrender all that we have, all that we are to this name, to the name of Jesus, so that, so that not only will we be saved, not only will we be a, a daughter or a son of God, but he will shine through us. And I, I honestly, I can't, I can't imagine a greater joy than for us as a body at Calvary International Church to be able to look around this building or not even just this building, wherever we happen to be and just be able to look and take note of the souls that Jesus saved through our witness. May he multiply his kingdom through us. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you so much for caring about us. Thank you for dying. Thank you that your name is exalted. Thank you that your name is the only name. Thank you that it is the name above all names. Thank you that you are King of kings and Lord of lords. Father, in light of these truths, we as your church acknowledge our fragility and we acknowledge our fear. We acknowledge our apathy. And we know that, Christ, you often speak truth to apathy, not just truth to power. 
We pray that you would awaken in us that inspiration to witness and testify to your name. For it is in your name, Lord Jesus, that we pray. Amen.